This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Sockett, and joining me today is Ron Rahman, a software engineer at Argonne National Laboratory. Ron is the first engineer we are having the pleasure of interviewing from Argonne, and he could give us a new perspective about what it's like to work there. But first, Ron, welcome to RSC Stories. Thanks, Vanessa. I'm really happy to be here. So the first question that I usually like to ask is a general one. If you want to share with us your story or how you first got interested in programming or software and how you went through your training to get to where you are now. Yeah, um, well, my background is in the physical sciences. I did my undergraduate degree in chemistry. After I graduated, I worked in labs for a while. I worked in a wet lab. I sat at a bench. I pipetted things. I enjoyed that, but I didn't see as many opportunities for career advancement without having to get a PhD. I did see some good opportunities for advancements through doing programming. Our lab needed a lot of data analytics work. We were processing a lot of samples, doing high throughput experiments. And that was something I got involved with. I had some programming experience from college and I got involved in it directly through the lab work. In terms of my training, I was fortunate enough to do some part-time work towards my master's degree in computer science. I was working at the University of Chicago, and the University of Chicago has a master's program in computer science for professionals working in a different domain. That was perfect for me. I really enjoyed it. I did it part-time. I was able to meet some professors who eventually got me a job at Argonne. So it's actually, at least I think, kind of rare to be able to have experience in both a wet lab and what I guess is called a dry lab when you're just working with your computer. For example, I've never really done anything that I would consider a wet lab work. Can you kind of share with us the differences between the two and what you wound up liking about one versus the other? Yeah, well, it is nice working with your hands. That's a lot of fun. But I think the thing that I love best about computing is that compared to doing wet lab work, computing is a lot lower risk. When you're doing lab work, if you mess up an experiment, you've lost your samples. You've lost your experiment, you've lost your samples. Sometimes that could be the only sample that you have. Whereas if I'm doing computing work and I mess up, I mean, all that I've lost is my time. I've lost my time, maybe I've lost some core hours on our allocation, but it's really liberating to just be able to work so freely without the consequences of, you know, irrevocably messing something up. Looking back, I think I can remember considering trying out wet lab work and just having also this terrible fear of like killing something. Like if I was growing something, coming in one day and finding that I had killed it and I I don't think I could deal with that reality, so I went toward Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about your current role. What is it like to work as a software engineer at Argonne? And you can choose pre and post-COVID, whichever you want. Pre-COVID, I was doing quite a lot of work at home. Working at Argonne in the Math and Computer Science Division, the culture is 
pretty free. It's working remotely compared to other institutions. They don't strictly enforce working hours. You know, they do expect us to put in, uh, you know, they do expect us to put in a full week's worth. But I think they're finding the same thing that a lot of companies and institutions are finding is that if you give your employees a lot of freedom to set their own hours, they end up doing great work. They end up doing really good work and it's a great experience. So before COVID, I would be going in probably around three times a week. I'd be working remotely the rest of the time. I did like having that connect with people. But aside from the lack of human contact, it's been pretty much the same pre and post COVID. So I called you a software engineer, but I want to ask you how you sort of think about your role. Do you consider yourself a software engineer or do you relate strongly to the idea of being a research software engineer or something else entirely? That's a really good question. I think when I first got there about five or six years ago, I was doing more research. I was writing smaller codes to explore a research topic and especially to explore strategies for algorithmic design. You know, I did a lot of porting things to new architectures. We were trying to get a lot of our codes ported to GPUs at that point. So I was doing a lot of more research-oriented stuff with smaller codes. Now, since then, I've been involved with larger projects for which engineering, software engineering was more crucial because there were just so many components. You know, there was a larger framework, there were more components. Moving it to the latest architecture was not always the primary concern. The first concern was getting it to work. <laughs> They're large pieces of software. So in that capacity, you know, I would consider myself more of a software engineer. The idea is to get a stable working product that researchers can use productively for their own problems. So does Argonne have some sort of representation of a research software engineer, or is it mostly software engineers that might say, oh, yeah, I, I identify with being an RSE? The first I'd heard of the term research software engineer is actually through the US RSE. But I think there's lots and lots of people who would identify in that role. If they heard the term RSC, they would say, oh, that's what I've been doing my whole career. I definitely feel like that happens a lot. So let's look a little bit about your work. Can you tell us either an example of a project that you're working on or kind of a high level description? Several of the projects I've worked on in the past and that I'm currently working on are multi-physics coupling interfaces. The idea is that for a complex phenomenon, there are a number of physical processes involved. The particular ones that I've been working on are simulating nuclear power plants. In a nuclear power plant, you'll have one set of components, the fuel assemblies, that generate heat through nuclear fission. And then you'll have another set of components that distribute heat through fluid dynamics. You can get several other physical phenomenon in there too, like you could get vibration, but two of the most fundamental ones are heat generation through fission and heat distribution through fluid dynamics. So 
in a multi-physics coupling interface, the idea is that you would take some existing simulations that were developed independently, and you would find a way to run those and communicate physical information between them. The software engineering challenge is the fact that these two things, you know, these two physical simulations were developed independently, and you need to find a way to run them together in view of all the different library dependencies, the different runtime configurations, the different parallelization schemes, things like that. How important is open source software to this kind of work? The one that I'm working on now currently, which is called Enrico, the exascale nuclear reactor investigative code, is completely open source. The two single physics simulations are both open source, and the framework itself that I'm developing is also open source. I think the most important thing about it is getting students onboarded and universities onboarded in particular. At Argonne and within the Department of Energy, the reason things aren't able to be open sourced is typically because they, they do some sort of sensitive task in the interest of national security. If, say, a student or somebody at a university wants to be able to use their code for their purposes, it can be pretty hard for them to get access or just laborious to get access. Whereas if our codes are open source, that allows people to start using it really quickly. And I mentioned students because th that's really satisfying. You know, that's really satisfying to get students involved and give them something that they can start working on right away. You just gave me a wonderful transition. So I know that you do a bit of teaching and it seems that it's very important to you. So would you like to tell us a little about that? Yeah, um, I was actually fortunate enough to be brought on as an instructor in the program that I graduated from, the master's program in computer science at University of Chicago. I'm teaching the course in high performance computing, which was a course that one of my mentors taught before then. And I get students from a pretty interesting range of backgrounds. In the master's program for computer science, just in general, there's some people from fascinating backgrounds. I get quite a few students from finance. In Chicago, there are a lot of firms that do trading. I get also students from you know engineering backgrounds. Sometimes I just get students who are interested in HPC. They're trying to find a second career. Maybe they've taken some other courses in computer architecture or operating systems, and they want to be able to apply it towards uh, HPC. What's important to me is to be able to find a way to pipeline them into viable careers. I know a really common experience for RSEs is to sort of stumble upon their current position after a lot of wandering. I want to be able to provide them with a clear career path upon graduating. And that's something that the USRC has really helped me in terms of finding you know, job postings, just articulating the career path, things like that. You touched upon something really important about teaching that it's not just about sort of presenting material and having people memorize it, but there's a lot of other social factors involved that are really important, um, like teaching about communication, teaching about career paths. When you look at your teaching, 
what are sort of maybe the top set of things that you really try to instill in your students? One of the top things I try to instill with them is that it's less important to have the correct answer and more important to be able to engage in a discussion about the answer. Because the answer is not always clear, right? And you need to be able to at least justify an incorrect answer, if that makes sense. I always respect students who have an incorrect answer, but are able to justify it based on some, you know, some very reasonable lines of thought. Because I, I think that's an extremely important skill once you get out there, especially in the world of research, where you're always dealing with questions that don't have clear answers. I really like that perspective because in general education, we're kind of taught that there is a right and there is a wrong. And if you get the wrong, you have failed and you are wrong. And so it's very refreshing to hear like, well, you can be wrong, but we're also emphasizing the importance of just being able to articulate yourself and explain yourself. So I'll give you sort of a pat on the shoulder, even though you were quote, very wrong. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So from a practical standpoint, how the heck do you manage teaching and doing software development at the same time? Yeah, that is, that is, oh man. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I really have to rely on doing a lot of work up front. A few weeks before the academic term, I just really need to get all my materials assembled together. So I have a pretty good lead in to um to the quarter so I, I i try to stay ahead it was i gotta say in spring of 2020 it was pretty rough the university went all remote about a week before the quarter started and we you know it's like a lot of instructors were just really scrambling to get their courses retooled towards the remote experience thankfully the instructors were very supportive of each other, and we got through it. We found the time to help each other, and we got through it. I took a look at some of your course content online, and I really like how it's structured, not just, of course, have lectures and teach concepts, but also to give your students exercises that teach them how to think and how to solve problems. It made me think, why can't USRC, you know, as an organization of developing research software engineers, why can't we create content like that? How could we incentivize and then support these kinds of lessons for sort of the larger RSC community? I think the key for USRSC to be able to do this is to find a set of skills that is not already being addressed. And, you know, I do think there are plenty of them, but it would be easy to fall into this trap of, let's have a CMake tutorial, or let's have a Git tutorial, let's have a Hello MPI or a Hello CUDA tutorial that's not really tailored towards a research, an up-and-coming research software engineer. And, you know, it's also a matter of there's just so much out there already. How do we both distinguish ourselves and provide something of value? I think one key would be to find focus areas in particular domains because in a lot of training materials I see, it takes quite a while to get to a domain that we might deal with. And I think if we could find a way to just more rapidly 
move into you know useful domains for us like you said through examples through exercises just find those small exercises that are relevant to us i think that can make a big contribution i think that's really spot on a lot of rsc work tends to be more problem solving and so you have this general problem and it's usually oriented toward a specific domain and then you're just given like the resources of the internet to figure it out and that's very different from the kind of problem solving that we do in school when we're given a very specific okay solve this proof solve this equation and so a course like that i think would definitely work so can you kind of walk us through what it actually takes to put together a course like this well okay so Step zero for me was the fact that I inherited a lot of good material from my mentor who taught the class before me. But, you know, something that I've learned is that you just cannot give somebody else's lectures. You cannot just give somebody else's slides. I think for anybody trying to put together this training, you know, a new training course, I think that's important to remember too because it's not enough to take any of the resources you find already find on the internet and just like represent it. The main challenge for me when I was getting this up and started based on the previous materials was reorganizing it according to my train of thought, like the way I, th the order that I think about things and the order that I would talk about them naturally. On a personal level, what do you get out of being a teacher? Oh, I think the biggest thing I get out of it is staying sharp. I mean, you don't, you don't really know something unless you're able to teach it. And when I start assembling these lectures, I kind of anticipate answers to questions that I might get. You know, I, I try to anticipate what the students might ask. And when I start imagining those questions, a lot of times I realize, oh, wait, I don't know the answer to that question. So to quickly shift back to software, other than I think you said it was Enrico, are there yeah. any other projects that you want to give a shout out to? I want to give a shout out to the other projects that make up Enrico. They're the, you know, the two main components of Enrico are OpenMC, which is an open source neutron transport simulation, primarily used to simulate neutron transport in nuclear reactors. It's expanding its use for high energy physics. It's a really vibrant project. I also want to give a shout out to uh, NEC 5000 and NECRS, which are computational fluid dynamic simulations. The latter one, NECRS, is a GPU port. They've done a huge amount of work in getting that robust and high performance. One more question about national labs. Are you familiar with the other national labs? Absolutely. Yeah, we're, you know, we, I collaborate lots and lots with the other national laboratories. I have a collaboration with Oak Ridge National Laboratory. I have a collaboration with Idaho National Laboratory. We use each other's resources a lot. It's, it's really nice. I mean, I, I think overall we have this understanding that we're all working towards the same goals. We're all pursuing different solutions to the same problems and that's valuable.
again, we don't know what's going to work. When we start these projects, we don't know it's going to work. So it's, it's great that we have this whole nationwide collection of collaborators who all have different approaches to some of the same problems. So let's say I am a student and I'm interested in doing research software engineering at a national lab. How do I even start to think about which one to look at? I think your application domain would be a big hint. Historically, the national labs were founded around nuclear energy, applications in nuclear energy, and sort of related applications. And as time went on and this research model proved very effective, the lab started expanding into other areas like high energy physics. There's, you know, there's, there's labs that specialize in biology, in chemistry, in material science. So I think if a student wants to start collaborating with one of the national laboratories, the first thing they should do is identify one that does work in their area that they're interested in. I think a lot of people don't realize how diverse the work is at the national labs. It's incredibly diverse. So we're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. How do you personally hope to grow as a developer, a teacher, or even a person in the next five years? As a developer, I think I would like to be better about prioritizing things because there's always so much you want to be able to do on your projects. It's, it, it, it's nice because you want to be ambitious, but I think all of us can agree that it's easy to get carried away. But at the same time, you want to be able to find time to pursue things that are important to you. So finding that balance. In terms of a teacher, I think, you know, the, the way I want to be able to grow is to provide more content that's relevant to my students. There's like a core of material that's important to me and that is important to the work that anybody would do. But the rest of the material, I think, really needs to be driven by what the students want to learn, like need to learn and also want to learn. So, you know, in the next five years, I want to be always mindful about what the incoming students really want to know and would be useful for them in their own domains. And let's see, as a person, I need to get outside more again. Man, I do not get outside enough. So... I think, I think it might be easier in the next five years to get outside more. That is probably my biggest priority as a person. Balance as a developer is definitely huge. I totally agree, especially when our normal routines are just totally toppled with things like COVID. So one thing that you mentioned about wanting to keep this content that you're teaching your students up to date and what they need to learn what it made me think of is that I think being a software engineer could really help with that because one of the qualities of a developer is that you have to constantly be on top of this huge changing ecosystem of not just like computer architectures and code, but you know, just new libraries and ways of doing things and entire new technologies coming out all the time. So I think you might be helping yourself. It's like a, an interaction that's helping you to grow better than you would if you just only did either of those things in isolation. Exactly right. You want to have this perspective of what's useful and thinking about what the students need to know 
helps helps you see for yourself what's useful. One thing I hesitate to teach is like just the hot new thing that happened in the last year, because I don't know if it's going to stick for them. You know, I don't know if it's going to be valuable for them once they go out into the world. I think for, you know, a software engineer, it's important to sort that out too. It's important to sort out what's important, what's going to be productive for you in your career. We're all looking out for career advancement too, just like my students are. What do you like to do in your free time when you aren't teaching or developing? I like cooking. I like cooking a whole lot. I do all the cooking in my household. It's so nice. I, I mean, I think the thing I like best about cooking is like, like I think it's really hard to screw up. Like I'm not really ambitious. I mean, I think I use lots of garlic, like garlic and salt. If you use enough garlic and salt, like that's, that's, that'll take care of everything. So yeah, I mean, it, it's nice. It's gratifying. It's good to, it's good to have a meal together. I love cooking. I love having meals together. That's lovely to hear. And now I know the secret to, to good food is just to add a bunch of garlic and salt. <laughs> <laughs> Ron, thank you so much for being on RC Stories. I really enjoyed talking to you about teaching. Your passion for it just comes through. And I think to whatever degree you're able to share this with USRC or just kind of encourage the community to kind of work better on resources uh, for teaching, for training, that sort of thing. I think that would be totally fantastic. It could be a really great kind of initiative. And listeners should also know that Ron has very generously offered to try the editing for his own audio, which I am hugely grateful for. So thank you so much, Ron, for both being on RSC Stories and then doing the brunt of the work to edit it. <laughs> yes, no, you're welcome. I, um, I have a bit of experience from online teaching, so I'm hoping I can apply some of those skills as well. Thanks again, Ron. Thank you.